First Chronicles chapter one. We will begin reading in, in verse eight. The sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim, Put and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ra'aman Sabteka. And the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty upon the earth. And Mitzrayim begat Ludin and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kasluhim, of whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Zidon his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Well, uh, for those of you that began to despair and think that perhaps we would uh, spend the rest of our lives just trying to get through the genealogies of, of First Chronicles. As I've mentioned to you before, we do we do hit large uh, spaces where we know nothing else about the people but uh, the names. And as we get toward the toward the end of um, the Canaanite tribes. There's little known about these tribes in the in the Bible except the names, and really very little record concerning them in in secular history. So we have used our our time as something of of a general Old Testament review, hitting some of the real high spots from Adam, where our genealogy began all the way down to the time of Israel's conquest of Canaan. We've also used the time to look at some particular details. Who are these people groups? Where were they located? And what can we learn from them? But now we have, with one exception, uh, at the end of this uh, record of Canaan, really forgotten tribes, tribes about whom we, we know precious little. So at the end of verse 14, we have a mention of the Girgashites, and we are going to work our way all the way down to the Hamathites in verse 16, uh, finishing this, this particular record. But then I'm gonna set the Hivites to the side for some special consideration because we do know a little bit more about them. Just an interesting note about the way that um, the Canaanite tribes are, are laid out in the genealogy. It seems that Zidon, who would be um, the father of the Phoenicians, so he's 
he's quite a bit north. It seems that he's listed first because he's firstborn. But then the rest appear to be laid out geographically, starting in the south, for the most part, and working your way north. So we do know that the, um, the Hittites, the descendants of Heth, are uh, in the south. Remember, they had more, more of a more of a spread as well. There were some in the north and even peppered through the uh, through the Fertile Crescent. But uh, you know, a, a strong southern uh, settlement. The Jebusites down there, very close to the Hittites, as well as the Amorites. When you hit the Girgashites, you are immediately west of the Sea of Galilee. So you, you have worked your way uh, uh, northward. Uh, the Hivites are in the interior of the country uh, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, but t touching neither. So they're in the interior. But they also, uh, the Hittites also have a, a northern settlement. Uh, the Hivites have a northern settlement up by uh, Hermon in Lebanon. So as you're getting up toward uh, Syria. The Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemurites also appear to be uh, in territory that we would later recognize as being Phoenician. And the Hamathites, um, like Syrian, right? But it's interesting that the, for the most part, this record appears to uh, fall out or spread from, from the southern reaches to the northern reaches. Now, all of these, as descendants of Canaan, will be participants in that same general history. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, the Canaanites will be cursed with servitude. Although the Israelites, when they go into Canaan, are commanded to drive them out and destroy them altogether, the prophecy will be actually fulfilled. They will largely fail to do that. And the, the, the remnants of the Canaanite tribes that are left will indeed be put to um, servitude. Uh, however, a number of these appear to have either uh, perished or to have been assimilated before the time of the conquest. Um, the Archites, the Sinites, and the Zemurites appear to be among those. In other words, we have a mention of them here which came immediately from Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. But then um, we really don't have reference to them in the later record. Really, that's not altogether surprising. Even if they were given uh, an initial settlement for one reason or another, they could be wiped out or they could uh, amalgamate with other families and tribes, as it were. But they're going to disappear from from the stage of history without much in the in the way of uh, additionally said concerning them. Some of them will will continue and they will abide until uh, uh, the time of the conquest and beyond. So we will get some sparse references to 
the Girgashites, in Ezekiel, the city of Arvad up there in Phoenician territory will be will be mentioned. So we know at least the city, if not the people group, um, survives. And uh, Hamath, as a as a significant force in Syria, uh, will will play some significant role in what comes later. For those of you that know that know the scriptures and know. Um, um, both sometimes the the, uh, the friendly alliance as well as the hostility between Israel and Syria, uh, Hamath plays plays a role in uh, in much of that. Uh, interestingly enough, as when we think about lessons that can be that can be gleaned from the loss or the disappearance of these tribes, we are reminded that uh, the people groups of this earth can, can certainly be passing things. And wicked nations and people groups um, are threatened with the divine dis displeasure in this regard, that, that their names will be blotted out from, from the earth. And when we look at the, the trajectory of the American people here on this North American continent, that that is reason for us to, to tremble and uh, to be concerned. I think we are very much like the, the ancient Romans who imagined that Rome was the eternal city, never to be destroyed, never to be conquered. And... Uh, suffered that great disillusionment when the barbarians sacked Rome. Uh, we think that uh, the United States of America can uh, never fall and things are just going to continue on and on and on as, as they, they do now. But when you look at, you know, some of the tribes, nothing else is known. Um, the Zemurites, the Sinites, the Archites make no figure in later history, so they appear to have been lost pretty early on. But even some, some of the peoples that were relatively great, where, where are they now? Where are the uh, Hamathites? There are still Syrians. There might be biological descendants of Hamath, but they, but they have lost their, um, their distinctive ethnicity, as it were. They've lost their distinctiveness as a people, and they they have simply been uh, absorbed. But the Lord says something far different concerning concerning His people and concerning. Uh, godly nations. Just flip with me really quickly. Don't lose your place, but to Psalm 112. And in, and in the broadest perspective, Psalm 112, you look at verse 6. This is certainly true. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. 
that frequently happens in this life where um, even wicked men can can appear so very important for a little while but um, but the good the righteous the holy um, those are those are remembered in a much different way forever you think about um, two great figures from history you might think about Abraham the shepherd and then Nebuchadnezzar the great king both names are known both names are uh, famous but which one of those would you rather be as you are remembered by uh, by history but in the in the broadest perspective uh, when we think about uh, the endless ages that are going to succeed this present dispensation um, wicked men and their kingdoms that seem so very important uh, now are going to fall to dust and um, and if they are thought upon at all, it, it's not going to be with any sort of fond recognition and their greatness is going to appear to be nothing at all. Whereas um, uh, uh, the good and the godly, no matter how mean or lowly they were in this life, are going to appear to be great. Um, this is, I, I guess, in some ways, the great lesson of Ecclesiastes and some of the hardest teaching of, of uh, Solomon the Wise. He saw, he saw from, from the perspective of age and experience that the building of kingdoms in this world, if that's all that it was, if it was just more life under the sun and just things that were done in this world, it didn't mean anything. But the humblest man who farms his fields and feeds his family because he wants to glorify God and because he loves his family uh, those things will be remembered uh, forever. Uh, and God will set a certain luster upon them so that they will be remembered forever. Maybe to try to put this in a, into a sharper focus, maybe to think about one and the same thing done for two reasons. Solomon talks about life under the sun and the things that we do, that if all it is is life under the sun, they're they're just these frustrating, meaningless circles, right? You wash the dishes, to put the dishes in the cupboard, to take the dishes out of the cupboard, to dirty the dishes so that you can have the privilege of washing the dishes and drying the dishes and putting the dishes back into the cupboard so that you can wash, so that you can dirty the dishes and wash the dishes and so on. If that's all that it is, there is a futility to it, an emptiness to it, um, a circle that doesn't go anywhere. Or you might think of um, uh, changing baby diapers or whatever, you know, like you, you 
put the fresh diaper on so that the baby can soil the diaper so that you can take the diaper off and clean the bum and put the clean diaper back on so the baby can soil the diaper so you can take the diaper off and clean the bum and put the diaper and it just goes on and on and on and part of what Solomon is teaching is if all you're doing is living life under the sun if your perspective is restrained to this to this world whether you do something great like build a a kingdom or erect monuments that last a thousand years none of it matters because at the end of the day it's all empty vanity of vanities all is vanity but even the most menial humble task like the changing of a baby diaper becomes wonderfully transformed it is done to glorify God and to love God's little image bearer and we are assured that that will last and that that God will uh, memorialize that love as it were and those are the kinds of things that will be esteemed those will be the kinds of things that will be treasured those are the kinds of things that will be famous forever and ever um, God's work his gracious work in us to his glory those are the things that will be famous forever so interestingly enough once upon a time these were names these were great names in Chronicles some of them um, dust sooner others dust later but ultimately all dust and all pretty empty but interestingly enough in the midst of these same people groups that disappeared we see a a marvel of history a miracle of history you have the Israelites in their midst but this isn't just any people these are God's people um, and while the rest of these crumble to dust because of the relationship to God uh, Israel has had an abiding name throughout history even to the present day um, and it and it's one of the great miracles and marvels of history you guys know it very well and in Romans 9 through 11 and other places prophecies are made concerning Israel those prophecies are not yet fulfilled but require Israel's ongoing existence and so Israel abides to the present day um, while their peers and contemporaries have become notes in history they still have a distinctive existence they still have a distinctive existence in spite of harsh persecutions um, efforts to extirpate them and even their scattering which is so easy to lose your distinctive identity when you've uh, been uh, absorbed into other people and yet Israel abides as a distinctive uh, people to the present day it's a reminder uh, one that God does set a difference between people but when we pick up the book of God it's also a reminder that we are dealing with God 
uh, find a Girgashite if you can. But God has promises concerning Israel. He has made prophecies concerning them. And so they, in spite of the troubles of history, abide to the present day. We have in, in the scriptures uh, a wonder to be sure. Now I wanted to uh, uh, finish tonight with a, with a distinctive treatment of the Hivites because we do see them a bit more. Just a little bit about where they settled. I, I touched on this earlier, but remember they're in uh, the interior of the country between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, but not reaching to either. So that would be something like a, uh, like a southern settlement. If you know the Israelite tribes, it, it kind of runs from northern Judah through Benjamin up through Ephraim and into Manasseh. So it's a pretty, pretty broad extent of Hivites. But then there was also a northern settlement up by Mount Hermon. So you're talking about the, the northeastern reaches of Palestine, properly speaking, and extending from there up into uh, Syria. So there was a, were a fair number of Hivites and a um, pretty powerful presence from this, from this people group. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 34. This is something that you might have might have read past. Of course, the famous, or should I rather say, infamous uh, intersection of Dinah and Shechem. Um, but here we learn something about Shechem's family. Beginning in verse 1, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her, and so on. So we're, we're taught here that, and the geography I've just given you probably already, already indicated this. So Shechem um, is in Ephraimite territory, right? And so this is part of that southern settlement of of the the Hivites. And of course, this is a um, a most unhappy intersection of the people of God with uh, with the Hivites. This distinctive family of the Hivites ultimately is going to be wiped out by um, Simeon and Levi. And then there's some concern when you think about just how many Hivites there were around them and how numerous the Hivites were, you can, you can understand much more why, why Jacob was concerned. The people of the land are going to, um, uh, they're going to think that we're, we're going to dangerous. Um, this might very well evoke their 
um, their tribal sentiments and they could come against us uh, very easily and uh, and wipe us out so here we have an intersection with the um, uh, with the Hivites here you're about 18th century BC but if I could fast forward now to the time of the conquest so Israel goes down into Egypt they come out and so by now we're in the midst of the 15th century so about a full three centuries later flip forward with me to Joshua chapter 9 Now again, this is something that um, could very could very easily be be missed. Uh, probably most of us have been with the Bible uh, long enough to know that to know the story of the Gibeonites. So you remember, God, God told the Israelites to uh, wipe out the people of the land. the The Gibeonites. Uh, act so they want to make a treaty with Joshua but they have reason to believe that Joshua won't make a treaty with them so they act like they've come from a distant land uh, a land that is not abiding under the curse of the Canaanites they act like they come from this distant land they enter into a uh, a covenant with with Joshua but then we learn something important about them if you look at verse 7. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites. So we learn something important about the Gibeonites, that they were that they were a subfamily of uh, the Hivites. And again, when you look at the relative geography, that's not uh, that's not especially surprising. But there's a wonderful lesson in it as you, as you follow the family along. If you scan down in this chapter to uh, uh, verse 27, we learn a little something of what became of the Gibeonites. Joshua and the elders keep the covenant that they made uh, with them, but they do put them to uh, tribute and labor, verse 27. And Joshua made them, and for those of you that, that had the King James with the marginal notes, you'll see it says the Hebrew said gave or delivered to be. Remember that gave. Um, but Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place which he should choose. Uh, so the Gibeonites, well, this, for this, this is difficult news and good news, depending on how you look at it. So they are given over or delivered to be laborers. That might not be fantastic news, but laborers for the house of God. They become tabernacle assistance, if you will, and later temple assistance. They do a lot of the 
um, what we might call menial, laborious work that would that would go into supporting the temple's ministrations practically, hewers of wood and, and drawers of, of water. Um, but interestingly enough, I do believe that there are indications uh, that the Lord extended his great work of grace uh, to these Gibeonites that were so dedicated you might say that perhaps initially they were dedicated by Joshua to this work, but later they dedicated themselves. So they were involved in this labor until the temple fell. So this would be uh, the better part of a, of a thousand years. But they're carried away in the Babylonian captivity with the rest of Israel. If they had desired to be free of Israel and Israel's God, well, the Babylonians had provided the opportunity and they can now follow their own head and do their own thing. But interestingly enough, all of those years later, uh, a group called the Nethanim returned with the Israelites. Flip with me just very briefly to Ezra chapter 9. Uh, Ezra chapter 2, I'm sorry. Now, in, in the list of the, of the records of um, those, that are, those that are returning, if you look at verse 43 of Ezra chapter 2, and this would be more than what we're going to do tonight, but you get this reference to the return of the Nethanim. And then interestingly enough, the, the names for the most part that follow do not appear to be Hebrew, um, which does seem to indicate that they are, that they are foreigners. But interestingly enough, if you remember that, that verb, and you, you see it you see it in Joshua chapter 9 you also see that Solomon takes a similar kind of action in 1 Kings chapter 9 with similar kinds of language of giving but here um, uh, Natan in Hebrew means to give so these are quite literally the given ones and um, it's not an absolutely airtight proof but um, either this is the either this is the ancient family of the Gibeonites, or we have no idea who these people are, right? But but it does appear that these are the ancient Gibeonites, and it's a most remarkable thing if um, if you think about it. Um, those Gibeonite parents, all of those years before. Um, willingly gave themselves to the work of the house of the Lord, no doubt because they, um, by, by grace, they were converted. They had been brought to love the Lord. They gave themselves to uh, the work of the Lord. And if in that ancient time, the parents had made that choice, then all of these ages later, 
uh, when so many people are um, like like even the the ten northern tribes have largely been amalgamated with the Assyrians and they are uh, lost not only to history but in that relationship to the to the true God right but if if your parents had made that decision in ancient times um, then you're then you're going back you're going you're going back to uh, Israel and like I said they could have had their freedom at this point if they had wanted it but they go back by all appearances here in Ezra chapter 2 to continue another indication of this is that they're immediately followed by um, a group in uh, verse 55 that's called the, the children of Solomon's servants um, which does appear to to refer to the first Kings chapter 9 and the fact that that Solomon had also uh, confirmed and set other people aside for this for this various kind of work dedicated to uh, the maintenance of of the temple in in those ancient times I guess here the the application is obvious and maybe why you could see why Psalm 84 was was very much on my heart uh, to start with um, may the Lord create this heart in us what a remarkable thing to um, begin as Hivites apart from the covenant of promise without God and without hope in the world but by God's providential design they are brought into contact with truth by his converting grace uh, they came to love the truth they came to love God's house and God's worship. And then the benefits of that rolled on for generations and generations and generations. So remember, the conquest is about 1450 BC. The return from Babylonian captivity, 538, 537, 536 BC. That's almost a millennium later. I do believe that this uh, suggests some things to us concerning our priorities as individuals. Of course, God ought to be first in the heart. Of course, the adoration of the heart ought to be toward him. As such, our hearts ought to pant after his worship, of course. But these are also not just individual priorities, but family priorities. And who knows, but that perhaps God will extend the, the same blessing to us. For the Gibeonites, that blessing rolled down generation to generations for all appearances for, or, um, for a thousand years. Who knows, but that God might extend that same gracious benefit to us and to our families after us. Let us pray together.